In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Jesus, Word of God, reveal more of yourself to us through your presence in the Bible. Led by the Holy Spirit, guide our time of reflection. May it increase our desire for you in the Scripture and in the sacrament. Amen. Our first reading gives us the story of the first deacons of the early church. Stephen, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parnamis, and Nicholas. Their necessity came about because, as we're told, the Hellenists complained against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. We might be tempted to think this distinction between Hebrew and Hellenist was one of ethnicity. Hebrews came from Jewish families and Hellenists came from Greek families, but that would be incorrect. Rather, the distinction between Hebrew and Hellenist was one of language. The Hellenists were Jews who prayed and read in Greek, while the Hebrews were Jews, but probably knew some amount of Greek, something like what the average American might know of Spanish, but were raised reading and praying in Aramaic and Hebrew. This language barrier brought about issues, including the neglect of Greek-speaking widows. All seven men chosen for the task of making sure the neglected widows weren't neglected any longer have Greek names, and this is important because they'll be able to advocate much better for the forgotten Hellenists. But why were seven chosen? Seven was, of course, an important number throughout the Old Testament, such as the seven days of creation. But since seven is an odd number, it could be useful in helping to break a tie in a dispute. The last line of our first reading might catch us a bit off guard and might make the priest listeners of our podcast chuckle a bit. We're told that even a large group of priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Now, this is spoken as if it's something astonishing, right? Priests being obedient to the faith. But what's helpful to recall here is that we shouldn't be thinking of the big-wig priests. Rather, any man born to a priestly family was, by nature, a priest. And because of this, there were many priests who served just a small portion of the year at the temple and otherwise lived a relatively meager existence. And these are the priests envisioned. From there, we continue to hear from an ancient baptismal homily in the first letter of Peter. Be sure not to miss the humor in our second reading. St. Peter, speaking to the newly baptized, is talking about how Jesus is a living stone and how, likewise, his audience needs to be built into a spiritual house like living stones. But remember that Peter's name itself means rock. It's almost as if Peter can't help but have a little fun, speaking from the experience of what his own name signifies. Towards the end of the passage, he mentions how these people are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own. These concepts are a combination of Exodus 19, verse 6, and Isaiah 43, verses 20 and 21. You may sometimes hear a kingdom of priests as opposed to a royal priesthood, and the discrepancy between these two is due to the fact that the word basileon in Greek could be translated as a noun, kingdom, or as an adjective, royal. But understanding it as an adjective fits more in line with the phrases around it, since they all follow a structure of noun and modifying adjectives, such as race that is chosen or nation that is holy. As we see elsewhere in St. John's Gospel, we've got a character who's acting a bit like a dummy in this weekend's passage. Think back of how Nicodemus asks Jesus about being born again, or how the Samaritan woman asks for a drink of water. We find the same concept here. First, Thomas pipes up with, Master, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And then later, Philip says, Master, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. By being a bit of dummies, Thomas and Philip give Jesus the occasion to clarify himself on something he's taught. 
The first clarification is that Jesus describes himself as the way, the truth, and the life. Now, there's a debate that's been occurring for centuries as to the relationship between these three nouns. Are all three mutually distinct? As in, Jesus is the way, Jesus is the truth, and Jesus is the life? We believe that as Christians, sure, but is that exactly what Jesus himself is trying to articulate? Some would say yes, while others, including St. Augustine and even Clement of Alexandria, would contend that we should read this another way, if you'll excuse the intentional pun. The way we should read it is this. Jesus is the way by which one reaches the truth and the life. In other words, if one wants to get to the destination of truth and life, the way to get there is also Jesus. For the second clarification, when Philip says that he wants Jesus to reveal the Father, Jesus scolds him a bit by saying, Have I been with you for so long a time and you still do not know me, Philip? This is all the more significant when we consider that 13 chapters earlier in the same Gospel of John, in the very first chapter, Philip is one of the very first disciples called by Jesus. This makes Jesus' point that Philip has been with him all this time all the more significant. So that's it. That's your Sunday setup for this fifth Sunday in Easter in year A. May this knowledge of the story behind the scripture allow you to encounter Jesus Christ in a new way this weekend. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.